Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Right now, a treat. Richard Haas is the president of the Council on Foreign Relations and far more than that with his public service to the nation in Northern Ireland negotiations. Ambassador Haas joins us with my book of the summer, a number of summers ago, The World, a brief introduction. Clearly, it needs a rewrite. Haas rumored to have a book out in January. We're thrilled the ambassador could join us this morning. Richard Haas, in your newest essay, see it, folks, at my favorite project, Syndicate, you talk beautifully about American overreach. There's all these phrases in the Richard Haas world, the clash of civilizations, the post-American world, and now American overreach. What will our new overreach look like? Well, this has become an assumption, uh, Tom, in the wake of uh, Afghanistan and the 2003 Iraq war, that the biggest problem facing American foreign policy is we were trying to do too much. Now you have the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine, and it's a reminder that classic geopolitics have not gone away, and that the, the new danger not, might not be overreach, but might be underreach, which is simply another word for retrenchment or isolationism. And we've seen voices calling for that in both parties. And I actually think one of the things coming out of this crisis is going to be a new equilibrium. We've already seen some new signs of that, some initial signs of that in the administration's budget. National security spending is going to go up. But the United States now faces a world of a Russian threat to Europe, Chinese assertiveness, at least in, in the Asia Pacific. Iran has not given up its nuclear ambitions. North Korea is expanding its nuclear and missile capabilities. You've got a raft of other global right. challenges. Suddenly the world looks to be a very dangerous place. The United States has got to address it. The new isolationism it can't be the Chicago Tribune isolationism of our parents, Richard Haas, with the modern technology, the speed of information, the reporting of intelligence by the United States and the UK of Putin. The speed of news here means it's a new isolationism. How do you see that playing out? Well, it makes no sense. Think about it, Tom. We're, we're just two years out of a, a virus that began in Wuhan, China, and killed nearly a million Americans. Climate change affects us every day. We just marked the 20th anniversary of 9-11. To be isolationist in a global world, uh, globalization's a reality. It's not a choice. The choice is how we, how we deal with it. So American isolationism now is truly, truly uh, a self-defeating and dangerous fallacy. Richard, let's talk about the here and now, right now, about these conflicts, this war in Ukraine, and what this does to the world order as you see it, if we're talking in big geopolitical strategy terms. How much is there a winner and how much is there a loser? Well, there's more losers than winners, which is almost, almost always the case in, in war. That said, NATO's come out of it in much better shape than it, than it was. I think the Biden administration has handled this fairly well for the uh, most part. The EU looks pretty good. Germany, what a, what a, what a turnaround. 
Ukraine is both tremendous resilience, but look at the destruction to the to the physical plant of the country. A quarter of the people are now are now homeless, either displaced or refugees. I think though the big loser more than anything else will be Russia. Look what Russia has done to its position in the world, to it to its economy. It's beginning to lose some of its best and brightest, and its army looks like a Potemkin military. So out of all of this, uh, I'd say Russia is the biggest loser, but also increasingly all a dangerous loser. We don't know how Mr. Putin might react to this, how he might lash out, how he might even escalate. When you talk about how NATO is a winner and Germany in particular as they try to strengthen their place, what's your view on how lasting this move away from Russian oil will be? How much can the Western nations actually effectuate some replacement for that nation's reserves? It's a great question. Uh, there's two parts. One is the physical part of transitioning out of dependence on Russian gas in particular. We're talking about years. In this country, we're going to have to build the, abil the ability to you know, export liquid nat liquefied natural gas. Europe's going to have to build the capacity to import it at scale. That's something that happens at year over over years, not, not months or, or weeks. And then the question is whether the politics are there. That depends, I think, on what Russia looks like over time. Do, you, do we get to to a post-Putin period. If we do, I expect there'll be voices in, in Germany that'll say we can now relax some of the, the sanctions. Some of the old fissures within the Western alliance will begin to reemerge if you see uh, a changed Russia. But at the moment, you know, we can't, we can't count on that. That's not a strategy. That's simply a hope. Richard Haas, was the, were the realist correct? Was John Mearsheimer and the others publishing in your magazine, you provided leadership on this debate. Were the real politic crew correct? Tom, I think this is one of these debates about whether we mishandled the end of the Cold War. It's going to go on for some time. This is one of those rare cases that even hindsight is in 2020. My own view is we did mishandle in some ways dealing with uh, the Russia in the years after the, the collapse of the Soviet Union, the end of the Cold War. Oh. But I also would point out that doesn't in any way justify or explain what Vladimir Putin has done. Mm -hmm. you, could have, you, could be, you could say both right. things. We mishandled some of the post-Cold War diplomacy, but in no way does that okay, justify or warrant what Putin did. Ambassador, let's get down to the nitty-gritty on two 2008, I believe it was at Bratislava. I could be wrong on that. I can't remember where the meeting was. Bucharest. Yeah, thank you. It started with a B. What do I know? The answer is <laughs> Condi Rice and Richard Gates got hammered. They didn't listen to the pros about what to do on the Eastern Front. Are they going to listen this time to the pros that are nurtured by institutions like what you've built at CFR? Full disclosure, folks, I'm a member of CFR, so I'm talking my book. But they didn't listen in 2008, did they? Yeah. But, Tom, the foreign policy establishment was divided. You had Democrats in the Clinton administration, Madeleine Albright, may her memory be for a blessing, was one of the advocates of NATO enlargement. So was Brig Brzezinski. Condi Rice, as you say, in 2008 in Bucharest with Steve Hadley. That was that was the view. Even now, you have people will say we should have done more NATO expansion. That's the problem, that, that NATO was never expanded to, to Ukraine. And then you have just the opposite point of view. Uh, we don't know what Russian political culture would have would have emerged as. So we don't know whether NATO enlargement and the mishandling of relations okay. with Russia brought this about or it would have come anyway. This That's really one of those debates that won't end. You sound like Nell Ferguson. Let's not do the counterfactual thing. Richard Haas, <laughs> bring it forward for the next Secretary of State. Which way do they tilt, Rice or Albright? I would say what we want to do is limit our involvement if we can in Europe. 
That's not the critical arena for the 21st century, Tom. I would say we want to free ourselves up as best we can to deal with China, the Indo-Pacific, and with global issues. The 21st century is ultimately not going to be decided in Europe. So what we need to do is manage things in Europe, put a ceiling on them so we can focus on global issues and on other geographies. Richard Haas, a clinic, as always, of the Council on Foreign Relations. Richard, thank you. Thank you very much. One of those sites of the four salt mines, if you will, the salt caverns, John, is scenic West Hackberry is where we'll get those millions of barrels or whatever we're doing. And that is about the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, and it is something that will affect the global price of oil. We are advantaged with all of our coverage, founded by Stuart Wallace, Javier Blas, and the rest on hydrocarbons. And we get expert view today from KPMG, their global head of energy Regina Mayer. Regina, I've got to rip up the script here and take it from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve to your visit in recent days to the United Arab Emirates. We spoke to the head of their energy policy who stayed on script. I need you to get off script. What is the power of the Persian Gulf to affect global price and diminish Mr. Biden's efforts to lower price? The OPEC plus producing nations definitely have the power to lower prices right now. Uh, I was struck by that, the confirmation that there is spare capacity in both Saudi and the UAE. Um, but there is a sticking to the script that all of them are, are mm -hmm. um, focused on. They have an agreement. That agreement has been in place and they are sticking to the agreement. Um, and then they'll... I think that gives a little bit of a buffer from some of the, the external um, pressures that might be facing them. And then when you ask each of them independently, right, so the UAE will say, well, we're just 10% right. and there is an agreement. So I, I was not surprised by what came out of well, today's 12-minute meeting. Take us from Doha to a Bloomberg surveillance conversation with the Secretary of Energy a number of months ago. And the, the point of the argument was, the one price of oil. Is that true that Mr. Biden and the four salt caverns have to deal with a global oil price or they can they manage a U.S. price? Well, I think that the challenge for the U.S. administration is that gasoline prices more closely correlate to the global oil price, which is tied more to Brent versus WTI. So while we do have abundant U.S. supply, which we still have a challenge of getting out of the ground, uh, labor shortages, costs, uh, et cetera. But the price of gasoline pivots more closely with the price of Brent, and that's where OPEC Plus and some of the other suppliers come into play. Regina, we're looking at this oil reserve release, potentially, as reported by Bloomberg, that could amount to 180 million barrels in some after all of the months are added up. How much does this actually reduce the uh, strength of the U.S., basically diminishing the reserves and actually propping up prices even further later when they try to rebuild them? Uh, great question. But, I, you know, if you, if you believe some of the other analysts, like, Secretary Muniz that was referenced earlier, there is a belief that toward the end of the year, supply markets will balance. So if there's an opportunity to diminish some of OPEC's influence in the short term and ease prices at the pump uh, for consumers, then that's the wise decision to take right now. I, I worry less about what it does to our, um, our defense ability in the future and the cost exposure, because I do think oil markets 
are poised to settle down in 2022-2023. Regina, to double down on that point that Ernest Muniz and you, you echo that we're going to have more of a balancing in the rest of the year, what does that assume? The end of what's going on in Eastern Europe, the uh, bringing back on some of the Russian barrels, or other sources as production increases in the U.S.? I, I, all of the above. Plus, I think the one thing we said that maybe you left out is that the current price is an incentive to non-OPEC producers. So a lot of plays are in the money. And I think people will do what they absolutely possibly can to bring more of those supplies to the market so they can monetize. Think Canadian oil sands, you know, think investments in Mexico. So there are uh, other sources of supply, Guyana and the fine that we have there that I do believe will come into into the market. And that's what folks are counting on to help ease the supply crunch. Regina, can you just clarify something for me quickly? What is the SPR for? And is this the right way to use it? Well, I actually don't feel qualified to comment on that, Jonathan, because I think it, it's it's a lot about our defense of our, our country. Uh, you know, fuel is a really important commodity. I, I grew up in Hawaii and I remember the 70s sitting in the backseat of my parents' car for hours on end on an odd or even license day, waiting to be able to fuel up our tank of gas or, you know, our, so that we could drive around a small island. <clears throat> so I think that's what it's intended to try to buffer and that we could, it, it, gosh forbid, that there would be a large conflict. We have those supplies and I think it's pretty important. Regina Mayer, thank you, of KPMG. Neela Richardson joins us right now, chief economist at ADP. That was important, of course, with their Wednesday effort on ADP statistics on the American labor economy. Neela, let me start with uh, Richardson 101. Are we a fully employed America? No, we can't be as long as a million workers are still on the sidelines. And, you know, the labor force participation rate is below pre-pandemic levels. But that goal is moving. What is full employment with a smaller workforce? It is defined as the level of employment, the the largest number of employed people the economy can support without uh, spurring additional inflation. And so that's going to be a moving goal as inflation uh, hopefully comes down over the course of the year. Neil, I was parsing through the data, and frankly, the most interesting uh, aspect of this was real personal spending, which was down by 0.4% negative. Uh, We're looking at negative numbers. People are not spending as much as inflation is going up. Is this a signal or simply a blip? (laughs) Well, You can't answer that in one uh, yes or no, because consumers are very bifurcated. Low-income consumers spend what they have. So that little increase in personal income, if it was two low-income households, that's actually a good sign for spending going forward. High-income households spend when they feel confident about the economy. And there is indication that consumers are not confident with inflation this high. So it's a mixed picture right now in terms of where that increase in income landed. If it landed with the low income, they need that money to keep up with rising fuel and food prices. And you might see that translated into consumer spending. If the Fed were looking at this data, do they get comfort from seeing a decline in real spending? In some ways, do they want to see a deceleration in demand? They want to see a deceleration in inflation 
not so much a deceleration in demand. Unfortunately, you, you can't have one without the other. They want to see an economy that continues to grow. Uh, so I, I think that they're very careful of where the demand is being contracted, right? Uh, they'd like to see it in house prices and rents, uh, not necessarily, though, in incomes and wages. Um, but that that is going to be the challenge, that they have this very blunt instrument. They can't control where the demand contracts <clears throat> in the economy. Neela, you have a huge advantage no one talks about. You go into the secret combine of ADP and you calculate all the payrolls and all the corporations using ADP for that core automatic data processing services. What are corporations doing right now? Consumers, 70% of the economy. I'll let you tell me what corporations are, 11, maybe it's 15% of the economy. What does ADP and you see is the doing, the action of corporations right now? They're trying to figure out how to hold on to their people. We have a very low jobless claims number. It's not as low as it was last week, but it's awfully low. And you pointed to what the cultural notion of this is. The cultural notion in terms of the, the business climate is they are very reluctant to let go of people because they don't know if those people are going to come back. We have a very high quits rate that is elevated. Job openings are hovering near record highs and hirings are not keeping up with openings. So right now, everyone is very focused, big clients, small clients, um, on retaining their people and hiring in a highly competitive environment for talent. When we're talking about the corporate outlook, Neela, let's uh, end where we began this show, which is really on uh, restoration hardware and this call that they had, where they basically threw the kitchen sink at their expectation that growth would decelerate and that their business outlook would deteriorate. How much is that representative of the larger corporate universe in face of the inflation and the consumer where they are versus perhaps a more specific or ambiguous story? Look, as the economy, as this recovery matures, what we expect um, is a shift in consumer spending from durables, like furniture, over to services. Um, that's what we're waiting for. The problem is uh, that that service increase is capped by employees. If services can't find the headcount, especially in leisure and hospitality that took a large hit from the pandemic, then we are not going to see the growth. So it is a macro story in terms of durable goods like furniture, like big, more big ticket items. But it also is about this transformation of the economy uh, through the recovery back into services. Neela, always an education. Thanks for being with us. Neela Richardson there of ADP. Let us save ourselves with Andrew Sheets, Chief Cross <laughs> Asset Strategist at Morgan Stanley. And Andrew, what you do is you combine in so nicely all the fractious, and folks, I say this with immense respect, the fractious debate of Morgan Stanley, and your single phrase is solid growth. What does solid growth mean for my 2022? Yeah, thanks. Uh, good morning, uh, Tom. Great to be here with you and, and everybody else. Uh, so solid growth to us means that growth is lower than where it was in 2021, but 2021 was a, was a very high bar. That was extremely strong global growth. 
and 2022, we think, will still look pretty reasonable by the standards of the last 12 years, that we're still looking at you know, U.S. GDP growing around 4% this year. And even though we think we have a very disappointing first quarter in China, ultimately the four-year growth, we think, will still be uh, pretty pretty reasonable and that Chinese growth will reaccelerate as the year goes on. So when we're thinking about stagflation, I, I think we're thinking about a year much more like 2005 where PMIs are decelerating, inflation is higher, policy is tightening, than than something where growth is really falling off right now in terms of what the market needs to deal with. Andrew, the research you've put out recently is that we've priced in higher interest rates, but not the growth risks associated with it. Can you pour through the equity market for us and help us understand where you think that needs to be priced a little bit more? Yeah, so I think this is where some of the debate around the yield curve, which I'm sure is something we are now going to be talking about for the next six months, um, is is really interesting because I think what the yield curve is discounting is higher odds of a growth slowdown next year, which which we think is correct, um, and that certain asset classes are going to be more vulnerable to that than others. So, you know, when we think about the overall equity market, when the yield curve inverts, it doesn't necessarily go down. In fact, it tends to keep rising after that inversion happens. The the equity market's balancing. Yes, there's some greater risk of recession, but there's also a possibility that things continue on uh, for another you know, 12, 18, 24 months. But assets that tend to be more growth sensitive, something like U.S. high yield, that tends to see a pretty bad risk reward when the curve inverts, when this, when the odds of a recession are rising, and that starts to really underperform after the yield after yield curve inversion. So we think that favors somewhat more defensive positioning within U.S. equities, things like healthcare, utilities. We think that favors investment grade over high yield within within U.S. credit, and then some of the non-U.S. developed markets we think could be in a, a better place, a marginally better place because the financial conditions there are easier policy is under less pressure to tighten in, in Europe and Japan. Andrew, I find the bank's call fascinating at the moment. Betsy Grasick made a move early this week. Can you walk me through how you and the team are thinking about the financials? Yeah, so so we downgraded financials from from overweight, uh, which had been a, a favored sector for a while, down, down to equal weight. And you know the the reason for that is is a function of both. We've we've had a very large large interest rate move that that had helped the sector, but also you know financials as you start to get later in the cycle have to balance both uh, loan growth that is often still strong. Banks continue to lend even after the yield curve flattens. With the market often thinking, well, if the odds of a recession are rising, we need to price in a higher risk premium around higher loan losses. You know, 18, 24 months out. So you know we think the sector's risk reward is now a lot more balanced here. Uh, again, as those two factors are competing uh, against each other, you know, and after we've had a, a pretty large uh, rate move. And, and so that leaves us more, more balanced and, and looking to reassess. Andrew, where do long bonds sit in your portfolio, given the sell-off that we've seen to date and given the call that you have that we're in the same kind of environment longer term, even given this blip? So I, I think that the backdrop favors a flatter and more inverted curve. That's that's very much the way that our, our interest rate strategists at Morgan Stanley are thinking about that. And and that we could even have a dynamic where the two-year rate continues to go up towards towards three percent, but the the thirty-year bond does not rise uh, in yield from here. Maybe it even declines a couple of basis points. Uh, again, as the market is uh, looking at a very strong, we think 
structural demand for longer term duration. And also as, as overall yields rise, the funding position of pension funds gets better. That increases the desire to, to buy long duration assets to defease those pension liabilities. So we think longer term uh, investment grade bonds uh, offer better value here than say high yield. We think some parts of the emerging market credit index uh, will offer better value than say emerging market equities here. Uh, again, in part thanks to the, the longer duration of that index. And, and we certainly would put ourselves in the curve flattening, long end outperforming camp. Andrew, I know you've been building cash. I know that Morgan Stanley's approach generally has been to hold a bigger portfolio of liquid assets. At what point, what signals are you looking for to shift that, to deploy more and to go more into risk? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. So, so one, I mean, the equity market is clearly rallied back very, very quickly, and, and more quickly than than we expected. So, uh, you know, certainly, uh, certainly lower prices, but more specifically, a higher equity risk premium would be helpful. Uh, what we've seen is, uh, you know, on our measures, a real compression of the equity risk premium. Uh, uh, you know, a large richening of equities relative to bonds in a in a short period of time. Uh, I think uh, more uh, more space opening up there uh, would be helpful. I, I do. I think you know the investment case in 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 Europe could be a lot cleaner if we saw somewhat more certainty uh, around the direction of of the conflict in Ukraine, and and that could uh, I think certainly improve the the risk reward as we think about that market. Um, but I do think for at some level the the die is cast. Um, you know we do think we're in a later cycle environment. A flattening yield curve, low unemployment, tightening policy is a part of that, and and I think that that at a broad level is is naturally going to constrain how much risk we think investors should take, um, you know, kind of regardless of these other factors. So you know, we think this later cycle environment is is often one where wants to, one wants to be closer to home in their portfolio allocation, but you know, we would be looking for greater risk premiums to emerge in inequities credit that we think would compensate for those risks before redeploying cash. Andrew, just quickly. How's London? How are things right now? Because when I call family, they talk to me about how much everything costs at the moment. They tell me house prices are through the roof. What are you experiencing in the general economy there? What does Europe actually look like from your experience in the UK at the moment? So, you know, what we talk a lot about stagflation. I think the stagflation story varies a lot where you talk about it, right? You, you have very low inflation in Japan. You actually have quite good growth still in the U.S. I think the U.K. is closest to that stagflationary outcome. Growth here is weak and make it weaker as you see very large cost of living increases bite, uh, even starting next month uh, as utility bills rise. Uh, at the same time, that inflation is still very high uh, and where the current account deficit is still large. And so I think the Bank of England has a real, uh, a real challenge to it. I, I think on a structural basis, we are thinking that the pound will weaken against the the, the, uh, the U.S. dollar, the Canadian dollar, um, and you know I think the U.K. does face a tougher macroeconomic backdrop than the European Union or or the U.S. Andrew Sheets, awesome as always. Of Morgan Stanley, thank you, sir. It is. Claims Day and Jobs Day tomorrow. It's very early. Paul, we need to explain this. It's usually the first Friday of every month. Right. But it's never the first. They always then go seven or eight or whatever right. the number is. 
And John, John Farrell's like, Monday, Jobs Day this week. I'm like, no, it isn't. On air. On air. <laughs> exactly. That's and right. he's like, ah, Tom, glad you read in. <laughs> Always read in is James Glassman, who really begins our jobs coverage. He is acclaimed at J.P. Morgan in commercial banking and really with a pulse of the nation. Jim, I'm going to go local on you in Los Angeles. And this comes off an article today I saw that summed Mayor Adams in New York City and many other big city mayors dealing with crime. And the LA Times today, Connor Sheets has Maxine Waters overwhelmed, you know, one of the most esteemed politicians we have dealing with poverty. Maxine Waters overwhelmed by crowds on the homeless issue, on the crime issue in cities like Los Angeles. Are we really seeing a migration from troubled cities to new, less troubled cities? You know, Tom, it does seem so when you look at the flows of data. Uh, part of the problem isn't so much that. It's just sort of, the things got really expensive on the West Coast, up in New York area. And you're, you're seeing a population that's flowing inward. Uh, a lot of, I think for a lot of people, they're figuring, well, if I can work remotely for a few days a week, I can afford that place further out. I don't have to commute as much. So there, there definitely is a flow. And when I look at the flows from California, for example, uh, and out of the Northeast, you can see that uh, what's going on is there's a heavy flow right. moving into the southeast, into Texas, into the mountain states. Did so, the pandemic accelerate this like so many other conditions? Probably. Are we are we basically a Jim and Paul, Jim is so good at the 10 year timeline. Mm -hmm. Did we squeeze seven years into <laughs> two years with a pandemic? It does feel like that, doesn't it? Uh, and there's a reason. I think part of it is if you if you work in the technology sector, uh, you're used to working remotely. I, I see, you know, why is that the places like Coeur d'Alene and Utah are booming? Yeah, but Paul, uh, my, my, stop. <laughs> Jamie Dimon's listening to us five days a week. Sure. Jim, if you call in and say, I'm work from home, what's Mr. Dimon going to say? Well, I think we want, we badly want people to be back on the team, back home, back in the office, because that's where you learn stuff. And that's yep. how you build culture. So we all want that. And depending <clears> on the business you're in, uh, so some, some businesses don't need that. But I think over time we're going to find that we migrate back to the way we used to do it because, yeah, we don't like commuting, but the truth is yep. we're much, we build a better well, team when you're together. We're opinion-free, but I – did you – yeah, yep. I'm with you. I'm with you. <laughs> hey, Jim, what's a gallon of gas out in Los Angeles today? Oh, my God. Uh, I see I, – I paid six and a quarter, but oh. I've seen prices of seven. Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah you just get so it. You're, 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 you're paying six you know, and a quarter to go. In, about four hundred bucks more. Uh, yeah, wow. you're paying six and a quarter to go into the Glassman Hummer H three. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I've I've cut the trips. Uh, you can cut down the trips a little bit and save yourself. If you work really hard, cut the trip to the mall, or you uh, work remotely for one day, you can sort of offset this. But you no, know, people are. I don't see anybody. When you look at the highways, drive on the highways, it doesn't look like people are cutting back. So inflation's here, uh, Jim. Just you know, again, six and a quarter for a gallon of gas in Los Angeles. What is your inflation call? Is it, how effective do you believe the Fed can be in terms of dealing with the inflation pressures we see? 
Well, the, the, what the Fed is doing, the Fed can't do anything about what's going on right now. They're, they can't get the microprocessor chips to the auto industry. Yep. They can't get the, exactly. the oil prices down. This is all about the dislocations going on, but it's important for the Fed to get back to the sidelines. And that's really, to me, what's going on. If, if you think that the Fed moving the rate up from where they are now to 2.5% is going to fix this, I don't think so. The whole, the whole goal, the game at the Fed is to just get back to a neutral position, hoping that by the time you get there next year, uh, a lot of this inflation stuff will fall fall away. I, I personally think it will slow down this year, and I'm I think it's interesting when you look at the bond investors' views. You look at the implied inflation expectations of bond investors. Most people think this is going to settle back to where we were. Now that may be wishful thinking, but that's the Fed's view. That's the professional forecasters' view. That's the bond investors' views. I think we all know there's something weird going on right now with all these dislocations, and it just takes time to work them out. So, Jim, one of the uh, issues that are that we'll be focusing on tomorrow here at Bloomberg Radio and Television, obviously, is, is the jobs report. And again, the consensus yeah. is uh, 490,000 uh, change in non-farm payrolls. But what I'll be focusing on equally will be the wages. Is wage inflation something that is in this economy, should be in this economy, or not? Uh, you know what's interesting? Wages, yes, wages are growing faster than they were, but they're not keeping pace with inflation. Right. And by the way, even though you've seen labor pay going up, margins have been going up too. So it, it, it seems to me that wages are just kind of following along with the general the drift of things. Uh, inflation's running a little higher. Companies are trying to avoid locking in a higher cost structure. So what they do is a lot of them are offering one-time cash payments to compensate you for inflation, sort of uh, t hoping that everything settles down. That's kind of what the cost of living adjustments used to do in the old days. This is a little better because this gives you the flexibility, if things settle down, that you don't, don't get locked into a higher, a higher pay structure. So I don't think wages are causing the problem here. Wages are just really mirroring what's well, going on in the broader economy. You know, I don't want you to front-run Kasman and Feroli here, but with your anecdote on the ground work, Jim Glassman, are we fully employed? Because there, there are no employers I know who aren't desperate. Yep. Every, am I right, Paul? Sure. I, I mean, it's Duke, not just Duke is desperate for a three-point <laughs> shooter. And, right. You know, I mean, Jim Glassman, are we fully employed based on the Glassman Northwestern theory? You know, um, for the very moment, looking at the people who want a job, you could argue we're fully employed because basically unemployment is back to where we were before. The problem is we, had about, we have about 4 million people who gave up and dropped out. We think they want to come back. They dropped out because we gave them the financial support to be able to do that. So that, that support is disappearing. I, I suspect that uh, if we were fully employed, uh, we would find there's nobody else out there to hire. But I think over the course of the year, we'll find, in my book, there are 4 million people who are still out relative to where we were in the pandemic. You can't look at where we are relative to February 2020. The economy is always growing. You've got to look at where would things be as we're growing year by year. So I think we still, I don't really think it's fair to say we're uh, fully employed. Our problem is we have a structural demographic thing. You know what's yeah. so interesting? Our workforce, the population of people who are working age, has been slowing down really dramatically. You know who it is? It's the Bicenarians, our 20-year-olds. The what? <laughs> the Bicenarians, our 20-year-olds. They were growing. That population was growing 50,000 per month a decade ago. It's now declining 50,000 a month. 
Wait a minute. Uh, Wait, well, the Sweeney family, me, the Sweeney family just contributed three <clears throat> new adult workers to the workforce you, over the last few years. You didn't stop years. drinking well, for three days and selling that. Yeah. Jim Glass, and that, what that's, you, by the way, why everyone's complaining. You help one signs everywhere. It's the starting jobs that are really people are struggling with. They're having a hard time getting new people. Well, if you don't have a flow of 20-year-olds coming into the job market, this is why... Right. This is what they're talking about. Okay, what was that term you used? Bicenarians. Bicenarians. The 20-year-olds. The, tw- right. the guys who are 20 to This 30. is like Gen Z, Gen Y, Gen that, and now we're yeah, calling yeah, it's another version of that. I guess it's a democracy. See, this is what happens when you move version. to L.A. Yep. You, know, you know, it's like a whole other <laughs> language out there. He was charming when he was in Chicago. Jim Glassman, <laughs> thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. With J.P. Morgan, just truly a wonderful way to get our job coverage started. His pulse on small business is, is just sick, what he does for uh, J.P. Morgan every day. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for Insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.